If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn to Hebrews chapter 3, and do not be alarmed that we are moving too fast in Hebrews in this moment, because I'm actually fast-forwarding only to do a rewind next week and go back into chapter 2. But here's the reason why we'll be jumping to this particular passage, because this morning... Uh, on our calendar, we've moved a couple things, but this this really would have been our, our small group kickoff weekend. We've kind of moved that to next weekend, but the message this morning is going to be about the, the vital importance of fellowship and influential people in our lives, and that's what small groups really is about and seeking to uh, stir up among us. But uh, this passage that we're going to look at today, I, I reach forward to grab it because I, I, I think it speaks so importantly and effectively to our lives, our relationships, how we walk, how we experience God, his protective measures that are part of our existence here on earth. So I'm fast forwarding just a, a little bit here. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through verse 15. Title of the message is Introduction to Spiritual Heart Disease. Have you guys seen this uh, this new app that's out that you can get? It's got a little it's a little device that you can put your fingers on, and if you link it to your phone, it'll it'll do like an EKG on you. Have you guys seen this thing? Can anybody besides the old people seen this thing? Uh, it's like, hey, I can check and see if I'm about to check out anytime soon here. Well, how am I doing? Uh, I honestly, as a pastor, I wish there were a device we could give out in the foyer on the way in. Just say, hey, could you just come by here real quick? Like, like that thing you put around your thing and it checks your blood pressure or whatever. You, some of you guys have been in the church long enough. So we've talked about doing this again. We're just needing a little more manpower to pull it off. But we did a, a vital signs check a number of years ago. And, and it was quite simply, it was just sort of what you do when you go see your doctor once a year. And they run some basic blood work. They take your temperature. They take some blood pressure issues. Just some things that just would give away, hey, how you doing? Kind of a thing. Uh, I wish there were such a thing that we could just hook a device up to. And we could check our spiritual hearts. Not our physical hearts, but our spiritual hearts. And to get a little better feel for, hey, man, what's, hey, Keith, what's going on in here right now? Right, And I'm going to read this thought from Jake Metter, who wrote an article a week or two, a couple of weeks ago. That was carried in the Atlantic, which is not usually a bastion for Christian insights. But they carried this article, which was a bit of a review from a book that's coming out. The title of his article was The Misunderstood Reason... Millions of Americans stopped going to church. So listen through the EKG concerns. He says, nearly everyone I grew up with in my childhood church in Lincoln, Nebraska, right? This is not San Francisco, California. This is Lincoln, Nebraska, is no longer Christian. That's not unusual. 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in the past 25 years. That's something like 12% of the population, and it represents the largest concentrated change in church attendance in American history. As a Christian, 
I feel this shift acutely. My wife and I wonder whether the institutions and communities that have helped preserve us in our own faith will still exist for our four children, let alone whatever grandkids we might one day have. A new book, The Great Dechurching, finds that religious abuse and more general moral corruption in churches have driven people away. But Davis and Graham, these are the authors of this new book, also find that a much larger share of those who have left church have done so for more banal reasons. The book suggests that the defining problem driving out most people who leave is, well, just how American life works in the 21st century. That's not all that profound, is it? But listen, contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or, as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. Workism reigns in America. And because of it, community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that doesn't add So here we stand at this moment, we do this every August, making noise about something called small group gatherings. Small group gatherings used to gather probably 80 something percent of our church into those activities decades ago. It doesn't come close to that anymore. Because these influences are in every one of us. And I could pull up here the most influential godly people you could possibly think of who are here. And there's not a one of us here who aren't infected by this American lifestyle moment. Every one of us. And any of us who are thinking, no, no, not me, not me. Uh, If we pulled out your attendance and participation numbers, you would be quite surprised. Because it's just the way life is in America. That's well said. And so there is something to be said. And we're going to hear it today in this passage. There's something to be said that God has tucked into spiritual exchange with others. Something designed to protect your heart. From heart disease. Powerful, influential debilitating, destructive heart disease that could go off in any heart here, including this one. So listen carefully as we read from Hebrews chapter 3. This is a sobering verse. Hebrews is an incredible book as you and I are enjoying exploring this thing. But it's got five of the most sobering warnings in the New Testament, tucked inside this book. This book felt like, by the Holy Spirit, it needed to warn the people of God five times. This is one of them. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, 
do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And here's the heart of what I want us to hear today. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's pretty weighty, isn't it? But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Let's pray together. Father, what strategy is in this book we call the Bible? Everything that could be written down did not get written down. You selected certain things to write down so that generations of those who belong to you and those who would seek to ever know you would would find what they needed to hear. Lord, we need to hear what these words say to us. So Lord, would you open our lives to you as only you can. Lord, without your help, we are a closed book to you. We will not open our hearts to you. But Lord, by your grace, our hearts can be available. Would you do that for us this morning? Make our hearts available to the wisdom of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you pulled a table of contents on these passages here, you'd you'd find, I'm going to highlight four things. I'm not going to go through all of them, but first, there are four commands in this passage, right? We always want to pay attention to the Bible telling us do something because we should do what it's telling us to do. Secondly, there's an emphasis here of sober weightiness and intentionality. There's a be careful, be careful because there's something really sober here. And when the thing that we love the most, our walk with Jesus, our eternal relationship with him is the most prized possession any Christian has. And when then we're being warned here, Uh, something could lead you to fall away from that. That's pretty weighty. Anything that could lead me to understand that, that there's a danger in this world that could threaten the thing that matters the most to me. I don't know how you could install more weight than that. Third, there's an insight into something about ourselves in this passage. I'm gonna get to know me a little bit better in this passage. And fourth, there is a prescribed means of help. In this passage, we'll spend most of our time on those last two points. But let me let me start with that, because the weight in this gets its emphasis, gets its sobriety by a revelation about ourselves. If what's in this passage isn't really true about us, everybody can just relax, go home, catch the game. But if what's in this passage is true about us, All the weight that it speaks of comes to bear on our lives. And the writer intended it to feel that way. So 
I want to give us an introduction to spiritual heart disease. You know, if you're into understanding physical things, you would know uh, that heart disease remains the number one disease killer of people. It's more common than cancer. It's more common than any other form of death. Physical heart disease is. But this is about spiritual heart disease. Right? I wrote in your outline there, the Christian heart is vulnerable to spiritual heart disease. Hebrews is speaking to struggling Christians. Right, These guys are having a rough day. It is not written to unbelievers who have not yet experienced regeneration. So the miracle of the new birth has taken place in these people's lives. That's very important for you to catch. And not act as though, oh, well, I read another part of the Bible that says something that might mean this doesn't mean what it means to me. Oh, no, no. This guy's theology is right. He gets that. It is this audience that is asked to consider the possibility that they could experience, they could, a heart that gets hardened, a heart that goes astray, an evil, unbelieving heart. All right, so let me throw out some other verses that would, might lead us to believe, wait, 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 I've read other parts of the Bible. It doesn't kind of sound that way, right? Ezekiel 36. Got a lot to read, so I'm going to move through some of this really quickly. Ezekiel 36, the Old Testament prophet, sees a day coming where what God is going to do on the inside sounds like this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So Ezekiel says something about the heart inside of the believer following Jesus. And we fast forward to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5. Other verses would sound like this as well, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Those are powerful verses, aren't they? They describe something taking place on the inside of a human being that is the work of God, the sprinkling, powerful work of God on the inside of us. He speaks clearly about something new. He says things have passed away. These are powerful realities. What do you do with them? What did the New Testament writers do with these realities? We should follow their lead. Right? So when... The book of Acts, and I, this could be a very long message. I'm flying you through just a couple of thoughts here because it, this is why, again, I'm going to plug systematic theology because you need to be able to pull other thoughts from the Bible into this conversation. So when you study Hebrews, you should be borrowing the truths revealed in many other places in order to understand what's being said here. And so that's what I'm just going to do quickly, quickly. Acts chapter 5, just casually mentioned, verse 3, but Peter... And his early steps of the church, the community of God walking together. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Remember, Ananias was a member of the church. 
And they were trying to meet the needs of the community. And he came forward like he was selling a piece of property for X amount of dollars and presenting it. And he was doing this for a public motive. He wanted to be seen as something. And his heart was not right in what he was doing. So he misled people, making people believe that he had sold it for this amount and was giving this, but he held back some of it. And what I said, that wasn't even a problem. But notice what Peter says to this person in the church. He wants to explain to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Why was this going on in your heart, Ananias? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not yours to disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. We move on and we recognize Ananias falls under judgment here in this moment. But Ananias, you were contriving something in your heart. Dear brother, you were contriving something in your heart. New Testament saints, you could be contriving something in your heart heart. Satan could be at work in your heart. And that's in the New Testament. Second Corinthians 4 verse 16. We do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Well, that's a helpful insight, isn't it? Because if my inner being is being renewed, it tells me it's not a finished product yet. It still has room to be adjusted. It can still move to a better place. It can take on new qualities. So my inner being is under the influence of more than one force in it. It's not just under what sounds like I heard in Ezekiel 30 to 26. Then Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 22 tells us to put off your old self. Now, why does that catch my attention? Well, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, I was told about being a new creation and that the old has passed away. Past tense, brother. It's done. And, and listen, I preach this stuff and it's not wrong. It's just only partially being understood sometimes when we go to apply it. The old has passed away. Well, then why is the New Testament telling me to put off your old self? I thought it was dead. Well, it is, but it's still got to be dealt with. You still got to interact with it. And it's still somehow influential in your life. So much so that Paul said, you're going to have to put that off, which belongs to your former manner of life. Well, if it belongs to that, why do I need to interact with it today? Well, listen, I'm not trying to be super complicated here. Just do it, will you? Whether I get it or not, I'm clearly being told something needs to be done with that which I thought was dead in a bucket somewhere and thrown out. Well, it's still active, right? Which belongs to your former manner of life and is, present tense, corrupt through deceitful desires, so right now in my life, corruption and deceitful desires came in the building with me. I brought it with me somewhere in here. 
You didn't see it. I had a nice shirt on. I'm dressed nice, got a smile on. But inside, where you can't necessarily see, there is corruption and deceitful desires. All right, Keith, put your fingers on here. How active are those suckers in your life right now, dude? How out of rhythm is your heart right now? If everybody could take a spiritual heart check and put your fingers on some paddles right now, would anybody be rushed to the hospital right now spiritually? Because you are in a bad place, man. The corruption, the internal desires, they're so out of check. They're so out of bounds right now. You need to freak out right now in this church service. You need to find people to pray with at the end of this moment and say, I I need some help in my heart. I am not in a good place. You can be a Christian and say that. As a matter of fact, Hebrews wants you to be aware of that and not close your eyes to that as, oh, well, I've got some kind of spiritual insight that that could never be me. Oh, really? It could most certainly be you. And it's not just the New Testament that's going to take us there. Walk through church history, and you're going to hear lots and lots of insightful, godly individuals. And I, and I highlighted the fact that in church history, a reformed theologians would be noisy, noisy in this category. And nobody's more God-centered than reformed theologians. Nobody stands more clearly and says, God did it, it's done, God did it, it's done, God did it, it's done, than reformed theologians. Even though they're very aware that God has done something irreversible and overpowering of his creation, they still stand and talk to you and I about our own hearts as though they matter. Right? Quick listen. We'll run through these guys. Everybody knows this song Robert Robinson wrote, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. These these words, I don't think I ever make it through this song without a sense of weeping coming over me because I hate the way it feels and I hate that it's true. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is not an unbeliever writing this passage. This is a believer who knows there is something about my heart, this side of glory, that it's prone, it's vulnerable. It will find reasons to walk away, to give up, to not like something at such a level that I'm ready to move on from it. I hate that something like that is inside of me. But it is. This verse wants me to pay attention to it. John Flavel was a pastor, Puritan pastor. He said, the greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. Brian Hedges, in the last few years, has written a book called Watchfulness. He sounds like an old Puritan, but he's a modern guy. He says this, the problem is that our hearts have become sick diseased by a deadly contagion of sin. In the words of the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The good news for believers is that God has, in fact, changed our hearts. Into the darkness of our benighted minds, God brings light. 
into the chaos of our inner worlds, he brings order. But even after new birth, our hearts must be kept. They must be guarded from fleshly desires that wage a relentless guerrilla warfare against our souls. That's what Peter said in the New Testament post-conversion. Sin's dominion over us is broken, but its seditious influence remains. That's a theologically complicated line. That one line is very complicated. It needs a lot of help from a lot of other places. But at the end of the day, its seditious influence remains. Thus, the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, turns around and says, Take care, brothers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's a sober thought, isn't it? I think I wrote in your outline there, the the writer of Hebrews is speaking to brothers. Regenerated by the Holy Spirit, those who share in Christ. These weighty concerns are addressed to Christians. Vigilance and sober carefulness is applied throughout the New Testament. You get the last writer in the New Testament is the Apostle John. And one of the last things he's going to write is his letters and then the book of Revelation. And in 1 John, he concludes his letter in 1 John with this phrase, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Really, John, that's how you want to go out? That's the last thing you want to say to us of all the things. And he said some rich stuff. Have you ever read 1 John? It's a rich, rich letter. But he ends that with, okay, guys, heads up. Keep yourselves from idols. David Collison picks that up. He says, in a 105-verse treaty on living in vital fellowship with Jesus, the Son of God, how on earth does that unexpected command merit being the final word? John's last line properly leaves us with that most basic question which God continually poses to each human heart. Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken the title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Those are good words to just fish around. Like, what's my heart feeling like it's trusting in and hoping in and preoccupied with and loyal to? Those are good words to figure out what my heart may be seeking to attach itself to that I am needing to pay attention to because my heart is vulnerable. Right? Proverbs 4, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Right? So this heart thing inside of us, you know, be careful that you don't turn your back on it. Be careful that you don't become ignorant of it, that you don't treat it like it's some kind of automatic thing inside of you. And be careful that you don't crossbreed your theology in such a way that that the writer of Hebrews would sit with you with your theology and, and hear you tell him you don't know what you were talking about. I mean, look at what he does here. The context of this admonition is he's going to reach back 
to a group of followers of Jehovah in the Old Testament who are not regenerated by the Holy Spirit, by the way, and he's going to make his point on their lives. They always went astray. And then he's going to turn around and then he's say, be careful that you don't do the same thing. Oh, relax, brother. That could never happen to me. I've been regenerated. I have the Holy Spirit. That, that was an Old Testament problem. Do you, do you understand? The basis of his argument is what happened to them could happen to you. Otherwise, this is a meaningless phrase that he sticks in the middle of this. So whatever your theology is, maybe you need to go back and revisit and, and allow some things to sit in tensions with each other. And we've said this before, but it's helpful theologically to not wreck your ship if you realize when places like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Old Testament, when they look forward and they prophesy, they could be looking past you and I all the way to glory. And speaking of a bunch of things along the way. And so there could be realities that you're hearing in some of these passages that are not yet going to be fully ours. But they're letting you know they're coming because we're to have hope in that thing. But if you overdo that, you will, you know, you just release yourself from any carefulness because I, I've got this heaven on earth theology, you know. I just think everything that's true of me in heaven is true of me right now. Uh, that's a massive mistake. And if you do that, this is a meaningless verse. And it's carefulness and it's concerns, meaningless. You don't really need to be careful because it could never happen to you. But that's not how the writer sounds, is it? He's very concerned that something could actually happen. John Owen says, there is need of great care, heedfulness, watchfulness, and circumspection for a due continuance in our profession to the glory of God and advantage of our own souls. A careless profession will issue in apostasy, open or secret, or great distress. Our course is a warfare, which by the way, will not exist in heaven, thank God. Our course is a warfare, and those who take not heed, who are not circumspect in war, will assuredly be a prey to their enemies. You and I walk out this door today, unaware that there is a warfare, and the same devil that could find a way to penetrate Ananias's heart and get him to contrive some things is still at op operating in this world, still influential, and my soul can also be reached by him and influenced in exactly the same way to begin to contrive things in my heart. Carefulness is important. I'm going to install hyper-carefulness with this next quote. Brian Hedges says this, and when I read it quite honestly, I was kind of like, whoa, that's kind of hyper. Well, carefulness is what this verse is about. So since most of us are Americans and we don't pay attention to a lot of stuff, I need a little help. So how about an allergic reaction to carefulness here? Help by Brian Hedges. He says, your heart is valuable, but it is always in danger of being hardened. Have you ever felt the Spirit's prompting to kneel in prayer or reflect on scripture or write a generous check for someone in need and ignored it? I mean, do you finish that statement with, uh, duh, 
Who hasn't, right? Every other day, I don't know. Instead, you decided to make a phone call, channel surf, or check email. And then after a short while, the spiritual impulse disappeared. The inclination to pray vanished. Your desire for God's word evaporated with the morning dew. The spirit of generosity, gone. What happened? Your heart was hardened. The heart's proneness to hardness is another reason why watchfulness is necessary. Without spiritual vigilance, our hearts default to unbelief. Unbelief always leads to departure. Sin deceives us and our hearts are hardened and we begin to drift away from the lover of our souls. Left unchecked, our hearts are soon impenetrable, calcified by sin. Is that a little too weighty? Those little moments where the Spirit prompted us to read a passage and think about it a little bit. But I didn't check my news feed. Moments of maybe getting away from the noise to pray. But I've got so much happening. I just quickly just set that aside and, and went about my routine and my busy schedule and my activities. What if in each of those moments that unresponsiveness to God is slightly hardening my heart so that soon I'll stop feeling those nudges. I won't notice God is pulling me toward him and opening my heart to him and awakening a curiosity about him. I'll just stop noticing it. And Christianity will become something farther and farther and farther removed from me and less and less influential and experienced. But it happened in these small little spaces of the busy places of life. Right? If that's what's going on in our world, then this verse is weighty. Take care. Take care, brothers, because your hearts can be deceived. Let us stray and harden to such a degree that your <clears throat> heart's agenda becomes unbelieving evil. Could you ever imagine thinking that about yourself? That's something inside. Because when it becomes a heart issue, that's the thing about heart issues. <clears throat> Un unlike the deception outside, when it becomes and finds its way into a heart issue, it feels like you want this. You can justify it. You can explain it. It's wrapped up in you. You can't tell. That's over there. That's something. No, 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 no. This feels like you now once it finds its way into the heart. So this is, this is some holy ground for us to be aware of and be sobered by and be careful about. All right. So in Hebrews, remember what, who we're dealing with here. This is first century Christians following Jesus in a moment when it's really hard. And they're very discouraged. They're tempted to quit. This isn't working. They're not getting the outcome that they thought they were going to get. This is painful to follow Jesus in such a setting. So th this is the crowd that we're hearing. And over and over again, the number one thing that's going to be told to them is consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. 
right? We start chapter one with long ago and in many ways God spoke. In these days, he has spoken through his son. Have you considered him? In your discouragement, in your struggle, in your trials, consider him. Look to him, the author and finisher of your faith. Consider Jesus. It's going to be all throughout. And when we consider Jesus, we consider things that he does. Things that he has accomplished. Things that have settled the score between us and God. Things that have been purchased for us by his life that we could never have done on our own. It's about him. We sit in the bleachers. We watch our bank account go, get piled high with nothing we have. We never filled out a deposit ticket. He deposited all that by his doing. Are you in Christ Jesus who became for us justification and righteousness and sanctification? He is all these things that we just sit back and sing songs and go, wow, wow, wow. Did you see that? Wow. But that's not what verse 13 turns around and says here. Be careful, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But consider Jesus. That's not what it says. Although it says it all over Hebrews, so we're going to definitely always be considering Jesus. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Who's involved with this help? One another. Human beings with a knowledge of God and a heart for the spirit of God and a care for my soul are involved in protecting me from myself. Does that mean the Holy Spirit isn't? Does that mean Jesus isn't to be considered here? No. Can we let the Bible say what it says in each passage? Don't, don't yank something into this passage just because it's your favorite thing. Hey, my favorite thing is all about God. I, I would much prefer just the Bible to just sound like every phrase about God. It never tells me to do anything. I would rather that. But in this, it's actually telling me that there are other people, and I have a role in other people's lives, of exhorting encouraging others as a means of protecting them from the vulnerabilities of their own hearts and my own heart. That's the remedy here. That's why we do smaller gatherings. That's why we encourage friendships that are a part of fellowship. That's why we give access to our lives to one another so that these kinds of realities can find their way to us and we can experience them because we need them. Ken Hughes in his commentary in the Hebrews, he says, having given solemn warning, the author now promotes encouragement. But encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Think how different it might have been for Israel if they had daily encouraged one another instead of, of falling to negativism and grumbling and quarreling. Think if when they spoke to each other, their task was to guard each other's hearts from the vulnerability of the work of Satan and the temptations and the deceitfulness of sin, to guard each other by not giving into negativism and grumbling and quarreling. 
just way too prevalent in the world that you and I live in. That is the knee-jerk response. And some of us in the church can't tell that we're doing it too. People who are needing us to not join them in their unbelief and their complaining and their grumbling and their fault-finding, they don't need us to amen them. The risk in their own soul is too great. But we were taught to complain with the best of them. We watch Fox News and CNN every night. I've got a degree in complaining. I don't like anything or anybody. You don't like them either? Why don't you like them? Well, here's four more reasons that you didn't have before you complained to me. Now you can not like them for all these reasons too. And that's probably what Israel did to each other. Oh, great. What a, I guess Moses brought us out here in the desert just to kill us with heat. Let us die of thirst. That's a great idea. This guy's a genius, isn't he? Oh, did you see him the other day? Did you see me trip getting out of his chariot? <laughs> I mean, is that what they sounded like? Instead of recognizing, I am speaking with a person who has a deceitful heart inside of them. And if I help this stuff, catch fire in their soul, they will be deceived by sin and hardened a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more to where they don't even know they're doing it anymore. It's a sober responsibility for all of gossips, isn't it? As you participate in something that is undoing that person and causing their hearts to get into a worse place than it was five minutes ago goes on and says, isolation, and particularly isolation from the mutual encouragement of the body is a dangerous thing. In isolation, we are prone to be impressed by the specious arguments which underline the worldly wisdom. When you are alone and unaccountable, it is tempting to take the easy course instead of the right one. We are to encourage each other daily, not just on the first day of the week. And that activity is a protective thing, lest we become hardened by the influence of the devil and the deceitfulness of sin and our hearts drift away from God. Hey, listen, this doesn't mean we don't need the Bible. This doesn't mean we don't need a move of the Holy Spirit. This doesn't mean we don't need a lot of the things that the Bible highlights. But in this place, it is saying there is a means of God's grace that's in other people. And oh, by the way, you are that to others as well. Which is why we create connection points for one another. But those connection points, quite honestly, they need to be well informed. Because there is no such thing as a church meeting that's not exempt from deceitfulness, corruption, the temptations of the devil, and gossip. If you've been in the church for very long, you know that's true. So it will take intentionality for the tone and the influence of any gathering of fellow Christians to sound like this word encouragement here, right? There's two words that get highlighted in these passages, parakaleo and paraklesis. And they both are obviously related to each other. They are forms of exhortation and encouragement and comfort. If you list the long list of words that's under the dictionary in the New Testament for these words, it would mean, and you've got a paragraph there, let, let each of these words absorb you. 
Because when the Bible calls you to do something in somebody else's life, this is what it's asking you to do. To call to one side. Call for. Summon. To address. Speak to. Which may be done in a way of exhortation. Entreaty. Comfort. Instruction. It means to admonish, exhort, to beg, beseech, to strive, to appease. It means to console, to encourage and strengthen by consolation, to comfort. That's what it means to relate to another person in such a way that their heart can be helped. By the grace that God has tucked inside the fact that we're doing that with each other. And we're doing it biblically. And we're learning to do it well. Which is why a promotion for our small groups that the the small groups this semester are going through a study of this very principle. Instruments in the Redeemer's hands. You've heard us mention that before. We, We studied through it with many of you guys in the summer. Is about learning to be an instrument of God in somebody else's life. It's learning to speak the truth in love to others so that these verses can protect us the way in which God designed them to do that. It takes a little bit of skill, can I just tell you, to do fellowship correctly. To, to do it without intentionality. Every one of us, you know, we, we come to every relationship, we come to every setting, including the church. I got a lot of training in my background. Do you? I've been trained by a lot of people people that I liked and people I disliked. There are people who did things in such a way I want to avoid never doing that again. And I'm, and probably many times I'm throwing the baby out with the bathwater sometimes. And I learned something from that. And now I'm bringing it to you when I relate to you. I was raised a certain way. I, I had family members that were a certain way. They, they influenced me. I learned how to react to them and not react to them. And that began to shape my muscle memory, my reflexes toward you. I've been in the church. I've loved things of being in the church, and I have not loved things of being in the church. And if you've been in the church, and probably this is your fourth, fifth, sixth church you've been in, you've got stories to tell. And there are things that you love about the church, and there are things you don't love about the church. And how about, how about we learn to do this a little better? I'm, I don't want to say right, but I, I don't know if we ever get right until we get to heaven. How about we just learn to do it a little better? How about we pay attention to the fact that there are wrong ways to relate to people. And if I'm guilty of that, I want to fix that because this person's heart needs me to parakaleo them, to come and be a part of their life in such a way that they can receive something that encourages and strengthens them from the inside out. It's not just, hey, dude, hope you read your Bible. Hope the Holy Spirit just invades. I read a book on revival. Holy Spirit just show. Yeah, it is all those things. But it's what I'm about to say to you, too. It's how I'm about to treat you. It's the conclusions I'm making about you and the way I'm making you feel. That's what's in this verse, right? Let me give you one example where Paul's going to overload us with this parakaleo word. I don't think it's used more times in more concise moment than in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And it is calling all of us to something. He says this, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, Paraclesis, who comforts us, verb form, Paracleo, in all 
our affliction. What is God doing? He is comforting us in all our affliction. He is doing what we are called to do to each other so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comforts. What do you see in this verse here? There is this great, this is like a model of, of theological Christian exchange. There is a vertical exchange followed by a horizontal exchange in that verse. There's a vertical exchange followed by a horizontal exchange. There's Paul doing life with a living relationship with Jesus. That when he goes through some things, he has an exchange with God. He probably sounds like the psalmist. He probably cries out to God. I'm sure there are moments of complaint. There's moments of confusion. And he exchanges with God. This is what life feels like for me right now, God. This is what I'm going through. This is what's, what's making sense and what's not. And something comes to him that comforts him, that encourages him, that exhorts him, that does all that that word implies. And he gets that from God. And then he turns horizontal and he gives it to others. That's the Christian life. And you notice the horizontal only works when the vertical is working. Or the Bible clearly turns around and says, hey, love one another as I have loved you. If you're sitting in this room, you have no idea what it is to receive the love of God. Good luck with loving others. But the design of God is that he and I are supposed to be having vital, living, meaningful exchanges on a regular basis. So that my soul has been enriched and something's been poured inside of me that now wants to pour out of me. It's like a pressure building up and it just wants to spew all over people. The same stuff I've been receiving now is given to others. So listen, you can't do, you can't do small groups right if you don't do private meetings with God right. If you're never with God and all you're with is watching other human beings in our day have horrible exchanges between each other and that's what you pull yourself up to every day and watch it and watch it and watch it and then you crawl into a small group, you're going to be like a poison in that group. The means through which we transfer comfort and encouragement and parakaleo to others is because we're getting it from God. Now I know how to give it because I know what it's like to receive it from him. Now I know how it touches me and I know how it can touch you because my exchange with God is that way. And then Paul keeps it real here in verse eight. This is the apostle Paul, right? No, no, no more giant of an historic figure in Christianity besides Jesus himself. Verse eight, Paul says, for we do not want you to be unaware brothers 
of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. What if the Apostle Paul showed up in your small group and shared that? Not after he had digested it and could write about it in review. What if he shared it with you while he was going through it? What if he sat in your meeting and sounded like, I mean, would you freak out? This is the Apostle Paul. He's dude's despairing of life. The guy sounds like he wants to end it all. He's, he sounds like he's got, this Paul, dude sounds like he's got no hope. Yeah. Sometimes that's how life feels. Can we stop acting like nobody should experience that if you really are trusting Jesus? I think this guy trusted Jesus. And he found himself in a place where he so needed comfort from God because it wasn't working and it didn't make sense. But that's where the Hebrews are as well. This is working. We want to quit. We're despairing. He's just keeping it real. Verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, he sees something more than that. Remember, I don't think he sees all this right away. That's not how life operates. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us. From such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. This is a big moment of consider Jesus, consider Jesus, consider Jesus, isn't it? Look what he did, what he did, what he did, what he did. That's what Paul's pointing out here. And then he turns around and says, This is always bipolar. You must also help. He did, he did, he did, he did. But you must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on your behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Listen, I, I wish I had so much more time. I don't. This, this, this little passage here is, is dripping with much needed insights. Paul gets it right here. When he points us to God and he says, God is our hope. God is our hope. What he will do is our hope. His deliverance is our hope. His power is our hope. His tenacity, his loving kindness. God is our hope, but you are my help. I don't get to jettison either one of those. And don't make the mistake of reversing those. There's not a person in this room. There's not a person in my life who is my hope but there are people in my life who are my help. Don't fumble those words. If you transfer your hope to the people in your life, you will crush them and you will live disappointed in them for the rest of your days. So if you do that to your marriage and your hope for having life and being renewed and having a reason to get up in the morning, and finding joy in this world, if you transfer that to your spouse, you will crush them. They cannot carry your hope. If you sign up for a small group and you think that attending this small group is going to become the thing that creates in you a sense of hope, 
They are my hope. People responding to me the right way are my hope. Asking me the right questions. Being patient with me when I say something stupid. Relating to me when I have a need that everybody else should be paying attention to. And where is my small group leader when I went through this? If they become your hope, you will crush those people as well. And they will do nothing but fail you left and right. People are not your hope. God is our hope. But people are our help. So your prayers matter. Your engagement matters. Your parakaleo, your impartation of encouragement and strength and consolation and care, that matters to what's going on in our hearts in a huge way. All right, let me stop. Um, Advertisement for small group ministry. You know, there, and and this is, you know, we we use small groups. By the way, small groups is a, it gets hinted at in the New Testament. It's It's a bit of a invention just to get people in the same proximity to each other. Quite honestly, in the New Testament, a lot of New Testament churches in a place called Ephesus was like a bunch of small groups who, because they met in houses. They, they didn't have their own church buildings. So there was a lot of smallness in their gatherings, which this meeting does not afford us. And there's many things that we do that do not afford that kind of connection. But I thank God for guys who lead our seniors ministry and guys who do Bible studies that make this thing get smaller. And those who lead our small groups, another opportunity to get smaller. Those who serve together, Another chance to be smaller with other people where you get to unpack your life and you get to hear theirs. And that smaller dimension brings us this opportunity to take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from God. Encourage one another. Every day, as long as it is called today, right? So I've got to be able to receive that from others, but I need to be able to give it as well. And I need to be able to do it skillfully. This is why the only people who should be ignorant Christians are the ones who got saved last week. So when we say discipleship, it's not like, oh, that's for weird people. People who read a lot. People who want to go to a class and be inconvenienced by that. That's just kind of not me. Okay, can you spare all of us of your ignorance? Can you not be a person in the body of Christ for decades who doesn't know how to do any of this? When the Bible said other people's hearts are on the line. Learning how to bring some care and consolation and communication, speaking the truth in love to those who are being blown by every wind of doctrine and every deceiving thing in this world. I got a role to play in that, and you do too. And if you got a lot of reading to do to catch up on how to do it, well, then all of us have a lot of reading. That's just how any of us learn. Have you ever been in a small group? Many of you have, some of you haven't. All right, well, next week is a giant sign-up. You can sign up right now. You can go online. You can get around folks, and it'll be incredible, and it'll be disappointing all at the same time. (laughs) Kind of like being married to me. (laughs) Not being married to my wife, but her being married to me. 
incredible, usually disappointing. <laughs> All right, so I want to make sure we catch, catch the weight. Did you catch the weight of this Hebrews writer? It's a weighty thing he's saying. Other people's hearts and our own hearts need some help. And the help is in other people. It's not just in the Bible. It's not just in the Holy Spirit. It's not just in looking to Jesus, although we should do all those things. And if you don't do those things and you just hang around with people, you're totally in trouble. But there is an exchange from one another that brings encouragement uniquely to us in a way that we need it. Right, so let's pray. Let's stand up and we're just going to pray together and close. But I want you to just, you know, just you and the Holy Spirit have a little conversation right now. And keep it real. Lord, today would be a rather helpful gathering for us if we gained the insight that the writer of Hebrews wanted us to catch from this verse. Lord, if we just emerge from this meeting today with a greater understanding of carefulness, watchfulness, because of the vulnerability of our hearts, this would have been a valuable time together to guard us, to keep us from being casual, uninformed, not paying attention, not monitoring the conditions of our hearts. So Lord, begin with that. Help us to see my heart has some unique nuances and some challenges in this world to face. I need all the help God has afforded me. Lord, for some who are here, we are not able to escape the gravitational pull of America that pulls us away from mutuality and community and into individuality. Lord, we are not able to escape that. So Lord, help us in this moment to have your power and your work in us that makes us not to get trapped in that way of doing life. Lord, disrupt some things, replace some things. Renew some things in us that need to be touched by you. Lord, for every person who's here who fellowship with other Christians has also contained difficulty and heartache and perhaps betrayal or things that are to be avoided, Lord. And, and now church has become something of just public meetings and not being around others. Lord, would you help us in this category? Would you graciously give us faith for something that has perhaps made us afraid? Would you help renew in us the ways in which you would bring help to us? So, Father, we thank you for inspiring your word to find us in our moments. But Lord, would you send us from here affected by this word for your glory and for our good? In Jesus' name, amen. And God bless you guys, you guys watching. We'll see you next week. Guys, if you're looking for prayer this morning, please come find some members of the prayer team. We'd love to pray with you.